Good morning, LifePoint Smyrna. Great to be here with you while Pat's out on vacation. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, go ahead and take them out, open them up to 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where we're gonna spend most of our time today. Um, while you're turning there, a couple things uh, up front. If you're a guest with us, welcome. Uh, I know I, I'm, I'm normally at the uh, Stewart's Creek campus, and so uh, I think I know most of you here, but if we haven't met, my name is Jordan. I'm one of the ministers on staff here at LifePoint. Um, but if you are a guest with us, uh, in the seat backs in front of you, there's a little blue card. Please, uh, we'd love for you to fill one of those out. Uh, it doesn't put you on an email chain or anything like that. It's just our way of knowing who you are, and we'd love to thank you for coming. So please uh, fill that out. You can uh, hand it to us after service right there in the Connect area afterwards. Um, also, I want to remind our members, our regular tenders about giving. You can give on our website. You can give on our app. Uh, you can give uh, in envelopes around here. Thank you for your generosity, helping keep the ministry of this church going. Um, uh, while, while, while you're continuing to turn to 2 Samuel 12, I was uh, remembering as I was studying this passage this week, I was remembering uh, this great event in the world that happened in 2019. I know it's hard to remember any major world events before 2020. Uh, but in 2019, I was living in Europe at the time, and this was a huge deal in Europe. Maybe not such a huge deal here, but it's a huge deal in Europe. And specifically, I was living in Francophone Europe, a French-speaking uh, area. Uh, and it was when the great, magnificent cathedral, Notre Dame, caught on fire in Paris. Um, and so when that happened, it was, it was major, major world news. Uh, Notre Dame had stood for hundreds and hundreds of years and it had towered over the streets of Paris. And it was majestic and beautiful. It was this uh, uh, cathedral built uh, for the worship of the Lord. And uh, I don't know if they know exactly what happened. They said maybe it was an accident, could have been arson, we don't know. But I was thinking as I was studying 2 Samuel 12, how amazing it is that one small little spark, one small little flame, could grow and end up engulfing this amazingly beautiful building that had stood there for so long and how then the whole world was able to tune in and watch this magnificent building burn. And I thought there has to be a parable here for the effect that sin has in our lives. What can start out as something small can grow and build into something so destructive that people in our lives, people in our community, maybe even people all around the world could come and watch it burn. Well, this may happen in our lives because of the choices we make, but it certainly happened in the life of King David. This is exactly what sin did in his life. Last week, we spoke about David, who is listed in Hebrews 11, which is called the Hall of Faith, which is, this, uh, which is where we've been camped out all summer. It's this passage that highlights all these great different men and women of faith and their example of pressing on and living a faithful life. Well, it lists David, and we talked about David last week. We talked about how David was this triumphant king who conquered his enemies and ruled God's people from Jerusalem. Uh, last week, we saw that God made a covenant with David David. Um, and in this covenant, he told David that, that David would have this, uh, one of David's offspring after him would arise, and that offspring would receive an eternal throne 
The throne would never depart from him, which meant that David's bloodline would always be royal and it would would always be powerful. It's not bad news for a king to hear. So after God makes this covenant with David in 2 Samuel, uh, the next few, that that was in chapter seven, the next few chapters begin to detail David's military and leadership victories. We've already seen a lot in 1 Samuel and in the first part of 2 Samuel about David's victories. He's triumphant, he's strong, he's bold, he's powerful, he's charming, he's godly. Right after God makes this covenant, 2 Samuel 8 immediately goes into an account of David's military victories. 2 Samuel 9 shows this beautiful picture of David's mercy to a guy named Mephibosheth, who was one of Saul's descendants. You'd think that David, the new king, would kill all of Saul's descendants, but instead he shows mercy. Then it goes right back into David's military victories. David's rocking and rolling. David's the man. It's easy to read the first half of 2 Samuel and see why David was the greatest king Israel ever had. David's the kind of guy you would want to be your king. But as we continue to reflect on David's life, although he's listed toward the end of Hebrews 11, it's easy to remember something the beginning of Hebrews 11 says. Hebrews 11:6 says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Throughout this series by faith that we've been in, we've been asking a lot of questions about what a faithful life looks like. What does it mean to be men and women of faith? And we've looked at the example of faithful people who've gone before us. That's why they're listed in the hall of faith. But today I wanna ask a different question. What does an unfaithful life look like? What does a faithless life look like? Because although David was a faithful, godly, powerful, amazing leader, amazing man, amazing king, sadly, the second half of his life was not characterized by military conquest, wasn't characterized by great leadership skill. The second half of David's life ended up being defined by a crucial moment of tragic faithlessness. So here's what happened. We'll kind of build out some of the context before we get into our passage today. So David is in Jerusalem and his army is off fighting, fighting the Ammonites. And uh, maybe you've heard this story. Maybe you've kind of, if, if you've heard preachers talk about the story, you maybe hear different things. Some people say David should have been with his army. The scripture says, you know, it was the time when the kings went off to battle. David as king should have been off with his army. And because he wasn't with his army, he opened himself up to be tempted to sin and see if he had just been with his army, he wouldn't have been tempted. Well, maybe. (laughs) Then on the other side, there's the fact that his army was besieging a city and that type of warfare, David would not have had any part of. It's too dangerous for the king to go besiege a city. So David would have just been there and not done anything. It wouldn't have made sense for him to be there. So it would have made perfect sense for him to be back home in Jerusalem, dealing with all the other things that the king has to deal with. Whether he should have been with his army or whether he should have been in in, in Jerusalem doesn't matter because the fact is temptation to sin will always find us. We're always susceptible to be tempted to sin no matter where we are. So David's in Jerusalem, he takes a nap, 
and gets up late in the day. And after his nap, he gets up, he's walking on the roof of his house and his roof of the house is over the, overlooking the city. So he's got a bird's eye view of everything. And he sees down below a beautiful woman bathing. Now, on the surface, there's nothing wrong with this. It's not a sin to notice a woman's beauty. It's not a sin for a woman to notice that a man is handsome. That's not a sin. But that look became more than a look. Instead of saying, wow, that woman is beautiful, but she's not for me, so I'm gonna move on. He kept looking, he kept looking, and then that look turned into lust. Instead of bouncing his eyes, he kept looking, he kept focusing, and then it, sin started to well up in him. Her name was Bathsheba. Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah. Uriah was one of David's mighty men, one of his key and fiercest warriors. The wife of one of David's most devoted warriors, Uriah. Uh, she was the, the daughter of Eliam, who was also one of David's mighty men. And she was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. And Ahithophel was one of David's main counselors. And the Bible says that Ahithophel was so wise that when he spoke, it was as though God was speaking. That's how wise he was. So although Bathsheba was very well connected to key people in David's life, there are few things more powerful than lust. So despite all this, David sins for her, has her brought to him, and they lay together. Let the hearer understand. Now, David thought he could get away with a one-night stand. But then Bathsheba comes to him a little later and says, I'm pregnant. What are we gonna do now? Husband's away fighting the war, fighting for you. And I'm pregnant. Everyone's gonna know something's not right. So David comes up with a plan. He says, all right, here's what, here's what I'm gonna do. He sends for Uriah. He gets Uriah brought home. Uriah comes back to Jerusalem. David's got his arm around him. Uriah, man, been out there fighting hard. One of my guys. How's the war going? Hey, tell you what, you've been fighting hard. You've been working really hard. How about this? How about you go home, spend some time with your wife, enjoy a long weekend and get back out there first thing on Monday. But Uriah was an honorable man. Uriah said, my men are all living in tents. They're all on the battlefield. Well, they don't get to go home to their wives. Why should I get to go home to mine? No, no, no. I'm not gonna see my wife until all my men are home and they can see their wives. David presses him further. But Uriah, he's honorable. No, I'm not gonna do it. So when David realizes that he can't convince Uriah to go home and see Bathsheba, he makes a terrible decision. To, to try to cover up his sin, he decides, well, maybe I'll just have to get rid of Uriah. So he writes a letter to Joab, the commander of his armies. He gives it to Uriah. Give this letter to Joab, but don't read it. Uriah goes back to the battle, hands the letter to Joab. Joab op opens it, reads it. David commands to put Uriah on the front lines during the thick of the battle, the most intense part of the fighting. And when the fighting is the most intense, I want everyone to draw back except for Uriah so that he will be struck down. David has a man murdered to cover up his sin. What started out as a lustful look turned into an affair 
which turned into this gross betrayal, which turned into murder. At this point, David's life is starting to sound like those like true crime podcasts my wife listens to. But doesn't sin do this? Doesn't sin do this? Sin metastasizes. It spirals out of control. We can't control what sin does. We think we can, but we can't. It always spirals out of control. After this, Bathsheba's grieving her husband, and David looks like this really kind and loving guy. He brings the, 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 the grieving widow into his home, makes her one of his wives. I'm gonna take care of her for the, for the rest of her life. What a, what a good guy. By the time we get to the end of 2 Samuel 11, it looks like David got away with it. But at the very end of 2 Samuel 11, we read these ominous words. But the thing that David did displeased the Lord. David could pull a fast one on all of Israel, but he could not deceive the Lord who saw it all. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And David acted totally out of sync with the faith that we saw from him last week. And he greatly displeased the Lord in what he did. Now at this point, Nathan the prophet, who is like David's pastor, does what any good pastor would do. He confronts David on his sin. Ladies and gentlemen, a good pastor is a man who will confront God's people about their sin. You should run away from a pastor who will never confront you on your sin. I don't want that kind of pastor. I don't wanna be that kind of pastor. Nathan was a great pastor. And even though David was the king, David was still no one before the Lord. So Nathan comes and confronts him. And what we're gonna do today, we're gonna, we're gonna look at a section of Nathan's rebuking of David because of his sin, as well as see the consequences, the fallout of David's evil. We're gonna see this. The big thing that we're gonna see today is that without faith, without faith, we fail. Without faith, we fail. And we're gonna see three things about faithlessness. We're gonna see that faithlessness despises God's word. Faithlessness despises God's word. Faithlessness delivers painful consequences. It delivers painful consequences. And finally, we'll see that faithlessness demands true repentance. Faithlessness demands true repentance. Let's look at our first point that we're gonna see today. Faithlessness despises God's word. Look with me at 2 Samuel chapter 12, and we're gonna look at verse nine. 2 Samuel 12, verse nine. It says this, Nathan tells this to David, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. The Ammonites we're not liable for the death of Uriah. David was. David killed Uriah. Now, if you ask David, do you despise God's word? David would say, no, no way. I love God's word. But Nathan accuses him of despising God's word. Why is that? 
It's because David's actions speak louder than his words. David treated the commands of God like they didn't matter. See, David knew the law. David knew the law. He had to have known the law. David was a phenomenal theologian of the Old Testament. If you read the Psalms, most of which David wrote, you're gonna see that David was a man who knew Old Testament theology super well. And of course he did. Deuteronomy 17 commanded, God commanded that all the kings of Israel would have to sit down and handwrite the entire Torah in front of the Levitical priest. Why? Because the kings were accountable to the Torah. The kings were supposed to embody obedience to the Torah. The kings were to be first in their love for God's law. David would have done this. David knew the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. He knew the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And yet, David regarded God's commands as worthless. He knew that the law, the commands that God gave for how he should live were the pathway to flourishing and freedom and wholeness in his life. And yet he chose to believe the lies of sin instead. And in doing so, he despised the word of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is a direct correlation between faith and obedience. You cannot have one without the other. You cannot have faith without obedience and you cannot have true obedience without faith. Therefore, as faith fades, so does obedience. As faith increases, so does obedience. Obedience is the outworking of genuine faith, which is why James tells us in his letter, faith without works is what? It's dead. If you say you have faith, but you don't have the obedience to back it up, you don't have faith. You have a dead faith, a good for nothing faith, a false faith. As faith withers, our love for God's word turns cold to the point that we're apathetic to whether or not we even obey his commands anymore. It's like we become numb to conviction. I mean, think about a husband and wife. A husband and wife can fight, I mean, tooth and nail and make it. But when the fighting stops and is replaced by resentment and apathy, it is a harder road back from that. Apathy really does function as the opposite of love. So how do we go from these vibrant spiritual lives to despising God's word? How does that happen? It happens one small compromise after another one small compromise giving way to another, which gives way to another, giving, giving sin one inch, which leads to another, which leads to another. And then all of a sudden we've gone farther than we wanted to go. Now, sometimes a split second sinful choice can give way like an avalanche to further unfaithfulness. That can happen. That's what happened with David. I mean, one second he was lusting, the next second he was murdering a guy. But that's not how it happens most of the time. Brothers and sisters, is it not true 
that most of the time, it's a gradual compromise. It is a slow fading out. It is subtle. It starts innocently. I know I should go to bed. I know that I'm always tempted when I'm tired. I'm just scrolling through my phone, but yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'll just keep looking at Instagram reels for a little bit longer. I know, and this is true, that this algorithm uh, uh, specifically is gonna send me a lot of pornographic type stuff late at night because it knows that's, that's what people wanna look at late at night, but I'll be okay. Or maybe the woman who says, look, maybe I'll just respond to my old boyfriend's Facebook message. My husband doesn't have to know. It's just a message. I'm not meeting up with him. It's just a message. Or the man who says, look, man, I I know I struggle, but tonight I swear I'm gonna cut myself off after two beers. I won't keep going. It can start out innocent and subtle, but it can grow into something terrible very quickly if we're not on guard. Brothers and sisters, It is not too far a fall. It is not too far a fall from raising your hands on Sunday morning to folding them and despising God's word. David only wanted to give sin a little, but it took a lot. And despising God's word didn't just wreak havoc in his soul. It also brought about real consequences. Consequences, which is the second thing that I want us to see today. Sin or faithlessness delivers painful consequences. You know, playing with sin, I was thinking it's a lot like swimming in the ocean with the terrifying anglerfish. The anglerfish, you may remember it from such movies as Finding Nemo. It's that fish that lives deep in the dark part of the ocean and has that like little glowing bulb on its head. But behind that glowing bulb is like, it's like your sleep paralysis demon fish. You know what I'm talking about? Like it is the most terrifying fish you've ever seen. It's got these long, sharp fangs and everything. The light draws you in in the darkness. But by the time you see the monster on the other side of that light, it's too late. It's too late to escape. That's what playing with sin is like. David's faithlessness, it didn't just affect his heart though. It didn't just bring destruction to him. It brought destruction to everyone around him. So let's look at some of the consequences David had to face because of his sin. Look with me at verses 10 through 12. The Lord says, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Listen, for you did it, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. God tells David, you tried to keep your sin secret but I'm about to drag it into the light. Everyone will know what you have done. God tells David that the sword will never depart from your house. What does that mean? The sword will never depart from your house. Well, David tried to use the sword of the Ammonites against Uriah to cover up his sin. God says, "Uh uh-uh, no, 
not only will that not cover up your sin, but now that same sword that you tried to use to cover up your sin will now plague you. The rest of David's life would be marked by violence and death in his family as a consequence of his sin. It's tragic. I mean, the first thing that happens is that the, the baby that he and Bathsheba had together gets sick. And any parent who's ever had a kid, a, a newborn baby go to the NICU for any reason knows that it's terrifying. I mean, the, the, the nurse can just walk through the NICU with your baby to get to you and it's still scary. <laughs> you imagine the horror in David's heart when he hears that his child is gravely ill, he goes to plead, for the, plead to the Lord on behalf of his child. But he loses it. His infant child dies. See, David's sin with Bathsheba and his sin against Uriah the Hittite would be this, it was this hinge that David's life swung on. The hinge between his triumphant rise and his terrible fall. And it was something that he would carry with him. Uh, for example, 1 Kings 15, 5 speaks about David. It says that David was a, was a great man, obedient, walked in the ways of the Lord, except for the matter of Uriah the Hittite. That would follow him for the rest of his life. As a consequence, he lost his child. But it gets worse. It gets worse. All of his children start to go off the rails after this sin. First, his son, Amnon, um, who was a chip off the old block when it came to sexual sin, only his sin was worse than his father's. Amnon sees his half-sister, Tamar, and Tamar was beautiful. And Amnon becomes infatuated with Tamar's beauty. So much so that he decides he's gonna take Tamar for himself. Can you see how his father's sexual sin paved the way for his own? That alone is awful. But he brings Tamar into his house. He tricks her into coming to his house where they're both alone. And when they're both alone and no one can help, he forces himself on her and takes her virginity. And after this, after doing this to his half-sister, all of his infatuation goes away. And then it says he hates her and he despises her. So he casts her out of his house, subjecting her to shame and humiliation. But it gets worse. David's other son, Absalom, half-brother of Amnon, full brother of Tamar, hears about what happens to his sister. And he decides that he's going to go kill Amnon for it. And so he does. Within one chapter of David's sin, David's infant child has died. His son sexually assaults his daughter and his other son kills his half-brother for it. All of this as a consequence of his sin, but it gets worse. Absalom flees Jerusalem, but then comes back and starts a coup to try to usurp David, get him off the throne. He loses confidence in his father's ability to rule and says, I'm gonna assume the throne myself. So he starts this coup against David. He comes back to Jerusalem and Absalom starts to campaign for himself. And his poll numbers are great. Everyone loves Absalom. As a matter of fact, Absalom becomes so popular that David has to flee Jerusalem out of fear of Absalom. Now, David's men muster, his forces come together and they go to squash the rebellion in Jerusalem. Of course, David tells them, please deal gently with Absalom, my son. But Joab, David's commander, kills Absalom when he gets a chance. 
Go read 2 Samuel 18. Go read the account after church of David finding out about his son Absalom's death and you'll see a picture of a man totally broken by life. Three children dead, a daughter ravaged by his son. And at news of Absalom's death, it's like a dam breaks in David's heart. It's like he snaps. And you just see this picture of a man who's like spiraling out of control. It says that when news of Absalom's death reached David, he went away weeping aloud, just saying, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, oh, Absalom, my son. It's like, he's like a broken record. It's all he can say. And it's almost like all of these consequences are just building up and exploding in his life. It started out with one act of lust which led to an act of murder, which led to a life of unimaginable pain and sorrow. Brothers and sisters, there is no fire, no bomb, no bullet more destructive than sin. Sin ruins everything. When my wife and I spank our kids, one of the things we tell them is we say, honey, son, daughter, listen, sin brings pain to your life. That's what this is meant to teach you, that sin brings pain to your life. Isn't that true? My my daughter asked me the other day, do grownups get pops? They get spankings? Well, not really. We have worse things than that that we have to go through. So better to learn this lesson on the spankings today because you're gonna learn this lesson later on. Sin brings pain and destruction into your life. David had to learn this the hard way. It's like that old quote. I'd encourage you to memorize this. Teach this to your children. Sin will always take you farther than you wanna go, keep you longer than you wanna stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. My dad used to say that to me growing up. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. And man, that's the truth. That is the truth. There's no escaping the consequences, the earthly consequences, that is, of sin. You may think you can get away with it, but sooner or later, sin catches up to you. And brother, sister, listen to me. Listen to me. You, your life, your situation, your secret, it will not be the exception to this. Neither you nor me will ever be the exception to this rule. Our sin will find us out. And sin today can affect generations after you. David's children had no regard for God's commands, but why would they? Why would they have any regard for God's commands? What did they see modeled by their father? Sure, David was great. David did lots of great things. But something like this, that leaves a mark on your kids. But more tragically, Absalom lost his confidence in the covenant God made with Abraham. I'm sorry, with uh, David. David was God's anointed king. And Absalom tried to usurp God's anointed king. He raised his hand against God's anointed, which means that Absalom, David's son, didn't just oppose David, he opposed God, which means that when Absalom was killed, he went to hell. You don't make it if you try to strike down God's anointed. And David knew this. Think 
If David acted faithlessly against God's word, why would God's word mean anything to Absalom or Amnon? If our kids don't see us regard God's word as precious, then why would they prize it? If our children don't see us obey, why would they obey? If God's word doesn't shape our lives, why would it shape theirs? Our children don't come into the world ready to be shaped by God's word, eager to be shaped. They have to be taught that God's word is good. And one of the best ways to teach them is by showing them. Brothers and sisters, um, what children are the least likely to become Christians? Do you know? Is it the children of saved people? Children of serious Christians? No, those are the most likely to become converted. Not every time, but the most likely children to be converted are the children of serious, devoted Christians. Well, then maybe it's, it's the children of completely non-devout people, people who want nothing to do with church. Maybe their children are the least likely to get saved. Nope, not them. The least likely children to be saved, to become Christians, are the children of nominal Christian parents. Nominal means in name only. Those are the children who are least likely to convert to Christianity. And why would they? The children whose mom and dad show up to church, I don't know, once every five, six weeks. They say, we say we're Christians. I even put a little Jesus fish on the back of, of the car and every now and then we'll watch an episode of The Chosen. We'll say we're members over there at the Baptist church, we're members at LifePoint. Every year we do this or that. But then the children see, huh, when we do go to church, dad's one way. But when we come home, he's a different way. Dad'll cuss me out at home if I put my fingers on the wall. But then he's at church shaking everybody's hand and charming them up. My parents told me that the gospel was the bedrock of their marriage, but that didn't stop mom from walking out on dad. I mean, they say they believe these things, but it doesn't actually affect anything in their life. Why would I want that? Why would they want that? And this is a challenge for me. I'm a father. If we're faithless, how can we expect our children to be faithful? You know, I'm sure David thought maybe when Absalom died or all along the way, I'm sure he thought to himself, had I just turned away on that roof, if I had just turned my eyes away, I'd have my boys here with me. My daughter would be happy and healthy. My life wouldn't be such a mess. But David had to deal with the consequences of his actions. Sin resulting from faithlessness brings destruction and pain into our lives. But, but, we're gospel people around here. There's always a but when you talk about this. There's hope. There's hope for the people of God. There's hope for the people of God who have sinned. There's hope for the people of God who have been sinned against everyone struck by the destruction of sin. There's hope for us, which is why we get to the last thing we're gonna see today, which is that faithlessness demands true repentance. Nathan the prophet was a good pastor and a good pastor doesn't just confront his people on their sin. 
he also reminds them of God's grace. Look with me at verse 13. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You're right. I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. The best thing that we can do when we sin is own up to it. Not hide it. Don't deny it. Don't run away from it. Own it. Confess it. Yes, I have done this. Brothers and sisters, I have to believe that somewhere in this room, someone's on the rooftop right now. You're on the rooftop right now. You're looking at this opportunity for sin and you're hearing the lies of sin. You're hearing these promises, these rationalities as to why you're different. You deserve to be happy. You've been so unhappy in your marriage for so long. You deserve this. This, a divorce will solve all your problems. Sure, you deserve your little thing on the side. No one has to know. No one will get hurt. It's okay. Keep logging on to this website. Your wife doesn't have to know. You're on the rooftop and you're hearing these lies and you're contemplating. And the more you're looking, the more appealing this thing is getting. If you're on the rooftop today, do what David didn't do. Turn away. Turn away. Because brother, sister, our sin finds us out. Listen to me. Your sin, my sin, will find us out every time. Sin does not co-conspire with you to make your life better. Hear me, your sin wants to be found. It wants to be found. It only wants to stay secret long enough to ruin everything. And then it will turn on you. It will betray you. Your sin, my sin, will get dragged to the lights. Either we drag it to the lights and kill it, or it will drag us to the light and kill us. Which is why John Owen said, always be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Sin finds us out. Satan will never work with you in secret to make your life better. His goal is to humiliate you. And after you've sinned, he wants to isolate you make you feel like a fool, have everyone turn on you. That's what he wants. We have to drag sin into the light ourselves. And we have to put it to death by the grace and power of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I had someone come up to me after first hour and say, 10 years ago, I was on that rooftop and I made some big mistakes but I had to confess my sin. I've seen the Lord bring healing to my life. There's always a way back. David murdered a guy. After committing adultery, he murdered a guy to try to cover it up. And yet even there, Nathan can look at him and say, the Lord has put this sin away. You will not die. 
There's always forgiveness. In just a few moments, we're gonna read Psalm 51. Psalm 51 was a psalm written by David in response to his sin with Bathsheba. After Nathan rebuked David, David wrote Psalm 51. We're gonna read it together. But what we see in Psalm 51 is that David is clinging on to the promises that God made to him. He's putting his faith back in the faithfulness of the Lord. See, brothers and sisters, the way back from faithlessness is to cast ourselves once again on the one who is always faithful. The one who never gets fed up with us. David knew that God's faithfulness was not going to be affected by his failure. The covenant that God made with David to be faithful to him, to raise up this offspring, it would stand because God's faithfulness is not conditioned upon our worthiness. God isn't faithful to us because we're particularly easy people to be faithful toward. He is faithful to us, brothers and sisters, because that's who he is. And God, I love this part of the story. It's like God can't help himself, but just show his hand that he's the redeemer. By the, time, by, uh, by the time 2 Samuel 12 ends, all the stuff's going down. We have this little small section where it says that after David's child died and everything, David again knew his wife Bathsheba and she gave birth to a child called Solomon. Solomon was the offspring of David through whom the lineage of the Lord Jesus would be traced. God was going to be faithful to his covenant and God promised to send someone to David through David's lineage who would rise up and pay for David's sin himself. And not just David's, but ours. See, failure hurts for a Christian. But because Jesus, David's offspring, was victorious over sin, failure may hurt us, but it's not fatal. Failure will never be the end for the Christian, no matter how bad it hurts. Because even when we are faithless, God is still faithful. See, all of us sin, all of us sin. David shows us that even strong Christians can falter majorly. But because God is faithful when we're not, that means, brother and sister, listen to me, that means there is no category wherein you can repent of your sin and God would not receive you back. He truly is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and compassion. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. And as far as the East is from the West, so far has the Lord removed our transgressions, our sins from us when we put our faith in him. There's always a way back for the Christian. The promised savior, the one promised to David would be the hope of the unfaithful Christian on both sides of the cross because it is the faithfulness of Christ in his life and in his death on the cross, his perfect obedience before the Father, which is the grounds of our confidence before the Lord. I can stand before the Lord with confidence knowing that I sin and I sin greatly, but I can be confident because my standing before the Lord is not based on 
my holiness, my obedience. It's based on the obedience of Jesus for me. Jesus lived this this perfect life that David couldn't live. He lived this perfect life that we couldn't live. So that when we put our faith in him, it is as though all of his perfection and righteousness and faithfulness is put on us. And then all of our sinfulness and rebellion and unfaithfulness is put on him. And he gets the punishment. We get the salvation. God is faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. God is faithful to his promises to us. He is faithful to redeem what sin destroys even when we fail. So if you're on the rooftop, you can come down without fear of condemnation because Jesus took that condemnation for you. The only thing, Christian, the only thing waiting on the other side of confession for your sin for you is a pathway to healing. It might hurt, but there is restoration and redemption waiting for you on the other side. I would implore you, come to the Lord and repent. All of us can resonate with the words of the old hymn. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. All of us, we know that our hearts are so prone to leave the Lord, to to wander away from him. And yet God is faithful even when we fail. So we must turn away from our sin and return to faith in God's love and his faithfulness toward us. Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna read a passage out of Psalm 51. Um, I would, um, it's gonna be up on the screen, but in just a moment, I'm gonna ask you to kind of assume a prayer position. Our band's gonna come back out and we're gonna have some deacons come up. And if you need to pray with someone or process with someone, I would implore you to speak to one of our deacons. If you wanna be a little bit more discreet, you can come out to our connect area. We have people who, who would love to encourage you and pray with you. You can come talk to me after the service or one of our other staff members or, or leaders. Um, but during this time, all of us, we need to um, look at our own lives and begin to ask the Lord, search my heart to see if there's any impurity in me, any unclean way in me. And I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, confess that sin to the Lord. So to close our time, we're gonna pray the words together. I'm gonna pray this, these words over you. The words of David as he prayed and repented after Nathan rebuked him. So go ahead and bow your heads where you are. the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins 
and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. 